Ladies and gentlemen of uh, Radio Impound Podcast Nation, we got a uh, we got a special interview for you today. Team Associated's very own Cliff Led is on on the line, joining me, Jason, and Gotti. Cliff, thanks for taking your time out on uh, on this Friday and uh, answering some questions we got. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. We'll just kick it off normally how we uh, every guest. How Cliff? How did you get into RC? racing back in the day what what got you into racing originally oh wow boy that's a long answer um <laughs> but uh, I, I guess probably the you know the the short version would be that um i've been in some kind of racing my entire life from you know early teens in bicycle motocross to or bmx racing into racing uh, motocross myself and then into uh professional motocross and then into the uh, I was a motocross mechanic for a pro rider way back when, and then, um, um, you know, aside from the full-size motorsports, uh, I raced go-karts for a while. But I was always in some kind of competition, and then uh, I, I just happened to cross, uh, I don't remember where I was driving to, but I happened to cross a RC race uh, happening back in 1984, early 1984, and um, was just, you know, I was instantly hooked and couldn't believe what I was seeing, and and had to had to learn more so that was my first exposure to it and you know from that point through uh late 1984 and uh, buying my first two rc10s and uh, in i think november of 1984 december of 1984 i don't remember uh and then actually starting to compete and work with the cars through 1985 and 19 um, I was totally hooked at that point and uh, knew that I was going to head down that road. So that was really, that was really how I got uh, exposed to the the hobby, and it just hooked me because it related to everything I'd been doing, you know, all through my teens, and you know, from working on the motocross bikes or working on the cars or or and actually, you know, competing on the track and feeling that same adrenaline rush that you get when you compete at anything. How how soon did you meet uh, Mike Reedy? And um, and Roger and Gene, when did you meet those guys? Well, really, actually, Jay Halsey and his dad were the first for me to meet. Uh, Jay was somewhat exposed to, uh, I don't think he was riding uh, two-wheel motorcycles. He was riding quads and things like that. So uh, we ran into each other at a RC race. And uh, he came over, introduced himself, and was into, um, you know, MX racing to some extent. And I was sitting there in this big, you know, Team Yamaha box van. So he came right over, and we started talking motocross and so forth. And he started helping me with my car and set up. And then his dad stepped in, and I got to know them really well. And then, you know, a few races after that, they introduced me to Mike Reedy. And um, Mike, uh, you know, I, back in the early days when I first met him, I thought he really liked me. But it turns out yeah, he liked me. That's okay. on Jason's end. We'll blame Jason for that, Cliff. <laughs> but anyway, when uh, when I first met Mike Reedy, I thought he really liked me, but he actually liked my girlfriend. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's what really came out in the long term. He was, 
Um, <laughs> yeah, he liked my girlfriend, and uh, so I kind of used it as my to my advantage to get some faster motors back then. And uh, you know, obviously, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know that led me to you know get to know Mike really well, and and I was tr- started traveling with Mike and the team, and Jay Halsey and his dad, and we got to be really really good friends. And Jim and Jay Halsey taught me a lot of the, the ropes in the very beginning, so uh, it kind of got me up to speed. And one thing led to another, and then Mike Reedy uh, realizing that. Associated was growing back then after the release of the RC-10, and they needed more products and more people designing uh, new products. Uh, he introduced me to Roger because Roger had been looking for some kind of an apprentice to help him do design work. So uh, mm-hmm. it actually was at one of Associated's Christmas luncheons they had that we're all sitting around a table, and uh, Mike Reedy throws something at Roger and says, hey, you know, you got to talk to Cliff and, and see if he'd like to work here mm-hmm. or something. And we all laughed it off at that point. He uh, said, oh, you ought to see Cliff's girlfriend. <laughs> I don't remember that part, but it could have happened. You know, I never know. Behind the they, she was pretty hot at the time, but anyway. Um, <laughs> did I just say that? So, uh, but anyway, yeah. uh, one thing led to another, and then uh, Roger brought me in, and we talked a little while. And you know, I think about three months after that Christmas luncheon, I started working at Associated, which was I think uh, April of 1988. Been here ever since. Wow. Awesome. Roger said, "Now bring your girlfriend in here." Yeah, you guys are you guys are kind of getting obsessed with my girlfriend too. What's the deal? Well, I'm, I'm I mean, man, she got <laughs> you the job basically. I'm, well, I'm I would love to see some pictures from back then. I wouldn't go that far, you know. And <laughs> and my wife is a lot more beautiful these days. Oh, of course. And, yeah. <laughs> she's a big and she's a big listener of the show. <laughs> yeah, big fan of the show. Hi, honey. <laughs> You'll go home uh, over the weekend, and your wife would be like, "So, what's the deal with this girlfriend talk?" Yeah, we, I hope it doesn't go that way, but uh, uh, okay. yeah, no, I think I'll be fine. She understands. But that's kind of how it all got started. You know, um, uh, got hooked in with Associated, and kind of been here ever since. Huh, that's awesome. What would you say? In, in what, did you, what would you say at the beginning um, that she learned the most from Roger besides all the obvious? You know, I. I read the the thing about the um, Roger going into the Hall of Fame that you guys put on RC10.com, which was really really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would you Thank say you. that you learned so much from Roger? Oh gosh, it's a long list of things. But I think in the early days, um, Roger Roger designed everything and taught me to design without without considering constraints in the beginning is try to dream up whatever you can possibly do, but there's no limits. And then, you know, once you obviously get things narrowed down a little bit, then, you know, you know the, the second part of that equation is to figure out how to produce it. So I think it just, it just kind of pushed me to kind of stretch my creativity and to look at things from a different point of view rather than looking at them from you know, from a perspective where you have this long list of constraints. I can't do that because of this, and I don't want to do that because of that. And, you know, it just said, put them all aside. What, if there were no limitations, what would you do? And that's what you start with. So I think that's something he really um, instilled in me over the years. And, you know, obviously, as time went on, I learned to 
uh, I learned, you know, a lot of production methods and how to design products for injection molding and how to design a product for metal stamping and for machining and so on there, die casting. You know, whatever the process is, you're, you're going to produce the part. Yet. So I think when you get to that mode, it becomes more designing for production, and that's when all the constraints kick in. You know, in your head, I'm not going that di- Basically, you're, you're thinking of a design, but you're not going in that direction because you know there's a limitation with that manufacturing technique. And I'm sure you've ran into this several times, Jason, when you're thinking about a plastic part or a body or whatever the case may be. You're already way ahead of the curve thinking, well, I can't go down that road because I can't make that with this process, right? Right. uh, And I think uh, uh, many people who get into manufacturing who also design products find themselves kind of in that that conundrum, so to speak. So I, I think Roger was the was the first person, obviously, with a lot of influence on me in the early days that you know, just taught me to design without uh, any, without considering the manufacturing techniques or or how you would even produce it down the line. It was like, what would you make if you could make anything out of anything sort of thing? So, mm-hmm. um, and I think that works for a little while until obviously you expand your skills and you have to actually consider how to make it. Until you bring it over to Curtis and ask him to make you a prototype. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you dump it in Curtis's lap and then he looks at you like, what are you thinking? You know, uh, and uh, but you know Curtis, you know there there's a whole nother list of skills right there. Curtis is uh, I've said for years he can make anything out of nothing, uh, with nothing, <laughs> and the guy is just a phenomenal machinist. And so, but over the years working together, you know if we're building a prototype car, then there's there's a different list of constraints. And if you're building a production car, then it's it's a different set of rules. And, you know, if we're back there prototyping something, getting ready to go test it, then I'm sitting here designing for a part that maybe is going to be machined on the mill. And I know the rules. You know, I know that, you know, there's, you can have sharp edges, but you can't have sharp corners. And, you know, there, there's, there's all these rules when you're going to machine a part. And so you design it so that it streamlines the process for him. You know, if we're going to do a, a quick injection mold to make a part that we're going to use on a car temporarily, or at least for testing, then there's a different set of rules for the guy who's going to make a mold. And uh, I think that just comes over time. That's one of those things that an engineer just has to learn over time. I don't think there's any textbook that, that teaches them that. Cool. So is is he the uh, Roger DeCoster of Team Associated? Roger Curtis, you mean? No, I'm saying is Roger Curtis the Roger DeCoster of Team Associated? Yeah, I guess you could say that, you know. Uh, Roger's just one of these guys who came out of the aerospace industry who just was, you know, gosh, I have so much respect for the guy because he just, again, you know, when I wrote the whole um, presentation for Car Action and for the RCX Awards, and it took me about four months to put together um, and just constantly going over and over. But what it did was it, it brought back so many memories of the things that we worked together on and, and what I learned from him in the, in the early days. I mean, the guy is brilliant. And he um, he would come up with these ideas out of the blue. You know, you could sit there and rack your head for days thinking how to solve this problem, how to get to, you know, your, the, the goal you want to get to with this design or with this, this component in the car. And he'd walk in and go, oh, I want to try this. Done, done. There's the answer. It's, it's game over. And you just feel like an idiot at times. But, but the guy would look at things from a different point of view. And... Uh, I don't think that kind of um, um, 
I don't think that kind of ability can be learned in a, book, a textbook. I think it's it's more or less just instilled in you. You either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he was always able to um, to break things down to their elementary levels and then apply some experience from something else he worked on. You know, I mean, Roger has Roger has experience on things that it's hard to comprehend. You know, I, I talked about one of his biggest projects that he worked on at McDonnell Douglas in his early days, which was to build this this um, it's called a light gas gun. It was in that article, and it's it basically fires a projectile at twenty one thousand miles per hour, which is thirty what thirty two thousand feet per second. Well, that's something like twelve times faster than the fastest gun that exists on the planet. And he did this back in the the, the 60s. And it was developed in order to fire projectiles at satellites to test what happens to a satellite when a projectile hits it at that speed. Or uh, what NASA wanted to use it for, which is to fire a projectile at the moon to see if the moon surface was, was firm enough for man to land on it with a lunar lander. Wow. You know, so, I mean, you talk about high-end projects, that's about as high as it gets. So... I mean, when you got a guy who, who's is given a project like that, hey Roger, design something that's going to fire something at twenty-one thousand miles per hour. Where the hell do you start at? Yeah. You know, so it takes it takes somebody who definitely thinks outside the box to address something like that. So, anyway, so Roger, you know, working with Roger over the years has just been, you know, uh, a blessing. You know, granted, we don't get to work that that much together, at least in engineering anymore. We're always sitting here talking about legal issues now because both of our jobs have become more administration than, than uh, engineering. But, you know, I, I still see it in his eyes. So, mm-hmm. but anyway. <laughs> so it's safe to assume that uh, Roger was kind of a rocket scientist? Yeah. There you go. Rocket scientist. <laughs> Perfect. <Hello. laughs> Um, yeah, you got to be careful with that term for it. You, you got to be careful with that term because calling somebody a rocket scientist can be a compliment, or you're just flat and insulting them, right? <laughs> exactly. Very that true. Could be, yeah. could be below their pay grade. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we kind of move along with you and your um, with your racing days. Um, you know, is there a you know, a story you can tell us about your racing days or something about the world that you won that still sticks out to you today? Oh, gosh. Um, racing, I think, uh, you know, I think I've shared this a couple times in the past. I think in my early days of racing, kind of when I was in my, my heyday, so to speak, I think I... Um, I think the results I got were less on ability, but more were less on driving ability, but more were in car setup. And I just, mm-hmm. I, I think my cars were better than most people's cars. And a lot of that translated from me coming in from the motocross industry and right, you know, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, mainly late eighties tracks, especially off-road tracks were kind of evolving. And they were becoming bigger jumps, and there were double jumps and triple jumps and quads and, and really um, different obstacles that a lot of people weren't accustomed to driving on. And for me, coming off a motocross bike, uh, many people will probably tell you the same thing, is there's a lot of the same sensations that you use on a motocross bike to clear certain obstacles that you, you also do in RC racing, you know, preloading the suspension on the face of a jump. That's one of the reasons where... 
or that's one of the reasons why when you're going to do a big jump, you just can't wood the throttle and hit the face of the first one and get much air. You actually have to ramp the throttle up as you're going off the first one, and it's very, very similar in motocross um, to the way they, they clear large obstacles. So I think I had that feeling because I did it for so many years, and I was able to apply that. And in addition to that, I, I paid more attention to friction in the suspension components and making sure the shocks were smooth and, you know, bringing in different lubricants to use in the seals and the shocks and, you know, just making sure that everything operated smoothly like full-size suspension I was used to. And I think a lot of that translated into the car working a lot better on the track. Okay, yeah, so it, it, the driver still has to get the car around the track, but I think there were, there were faster drivers than me out there. It was just that I think my car was better most of the time. And that gave me an advantage in the early days, you know, and obviously along came Mark and along came Brian and along came, you know, the Francis brothers and stuff like that. And when, when they learned all of those little things you could do to the car to make them better, those guys were blazingly fast. And that was kind of, I think the, the kind of end of my era, so to speak, um, at the end of my advantages anyway. But, um, you know, then I was kind of stepping back and getting more of an engineering position anyway. So it, it all worked out fine. Um, but I think as far as good memories and racing, uh, there's there's a lot of those, you know, from the Worlds in Australia in 89 where we went down there with a car that didn't work. And while we were there, Curtis, Roger, myself, and, and Jay and Butch Clover, we, we all were thrashing day and night. Um, changing the stealth car that we had down there and grinding, you know, from fiberglass sheet, different shock towers and different shock setups and, and cutting new holes in arms. And we, we actually developed the car at the Worlds and won the Worlds, actually filled the podium with it. And, you know, to me, that was one of those just, it was one of the first project uh, projects I worked with Roger on when I came here, but it was one of these big success stories where I realized that all these guys that I was working with, you know, Jay, Jim, Roger, myself, Gene, Curtis, you know, we all just had a passion for building race cars and going and winning with them. And that's what everybody had the same passion. So just implementing that and putting it into, into form at, at one of these events and taking a car that didn't work when we got there and turning it into a world championship car over, over you know, the uh, a period of five days, that to me was success. It didn't matter who won. It was just the fact that we, we filled the podium with three cars, and it was just a, a major success story for us. So that's one of my, that's one of my favorite uh, memories right there, um, you know, as far as world championships and that sort of thing goes. Probably hard to top that one. That was like a... Well, <laughs> there's the 91 Worlds when I won. That was great. Oh, yeah. Well, um, and that was, I mean, that was a tough race for me because it, it, I kind of saw it as, okay, I'm kind of getting up there and there's some fast guys now and and it was a really bumpy track and um, we had a new two-wheel drive car there, the the stealth, the stealth, uh, second generation stealth car. That was the one that had the forward swept arms and all that, if you've ever seen pictures of it. And, mm -hmm. and we were struggling in practice, but we got the car up to speed and it was one of those events where um, I felt that there were people organizing the race that were kind of against me, so to speak. So um, I made a mistake in this rough section of the track, and the car got sideways. And I put I put uh, two of the wheels up into the grass area that we were told we couldn't we couldn't touch the grass area. 
So I actually turned the car around and went backwards and went back onto the track so I didn't gain any time and everything, and they, they took away my qualifier. And that was, uh, that was one of those tracks where the track was so bumpy, you had to wait until the track was groomed in order to actually qualify and get yourself into the final, and that was my groomed track, so I was basically out of the final. Oh. Um, but in four-wheel drive, um, that, I mean, obviously what happened to me in two-wheel drive, um, I'm, I'm trying to pick my words nicely here, really upset me. That's a nice way to say it. And, um, you can so swear on the show, remember that, Cliff. Right, but I, I, I <laughs> okay, it pissed me off. Ah, so, <laughs> so anyway, in, in four wheel drive, um, I uh, I had a bad qual, I had a good qualifier, put me third on the grid, and I was walking over to my turn marshal position, and I had one leg over the banner in my position, and the other leg over the banner, while some kid walked up to me and said, "I drove here from Atlanta, Georgia, just to see you and get your your autograph." So I'm signing his autograph when the buzzer goes off and they take my qualifier away. Wow. What? So, so now I'm out of both classes. But, uh, and that was my groomed run. So uh, the next round, the track was rough. It was like moon craters. But I still put the car in the final in the seventh spot and won from the seventh spot. <sighs> so it was one of those, uh, you know, between those two races, that was just the two that really go back in my mind as being really favorites as far as my own racing. Mm. So after that, you stopped giving out autographs and stuff? (laughs) (laughs) No, there were some words between the organizer and myself that were pretty colorful, but uh, I told him I'd do it all again. So the kid coming from Georgia was more important uh, to me coming up and seeing me than than anyone in the world. So that that made the race for me. Cool. Wow. But but then you won anyway, so... But then I won anyway, and it felt really good. So, and I got soda pop poured all over me and you know all the the spoils of victory so that was a good event yeah maybe that motivated you to take that victory too maybe you were just so pissed off you know yeah 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 yeah, it's very possible yeah get mayfield mad and watch him drive oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're we're doing that this weekend i'll bet you are (laughs) it's uh he comes off the track and i mean not completely change the subject but we just ran the first round of buggy and you know he comes off the track and he's so pissed off and uh he's like putting his radio in his radio bag and just fired up and and you know he he finished second uh for the round he was only seven tenths off of tq but he's just so angry about um something that happened during the qualifier that he's just like he couldn't stand it. He's like, I got to go turn marshal. <laughs> and then he comes back for his next race in Truggy and then just destroys TQ. So, yeah, I think he's at his best when he's a little fired up. I really, yeah. I really do believe that. You know, when he's relaxed, he's, he's not up there. You know, he's got to be fired up. It's like somebody's just got to punch him or something. Get him mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go at it, Jason. Punch yeah. him. I wouldn't want to be the one that punches him. Because I think he's got a pretty yeah. mean punch. <laughs> yeah. Just tag him with an airsoft gun or something. There you go. Shoot um, him with a paintball gun while he's driving. There we go. Going back to your four-wheel worlds, um, I've probably watched that video from Gene at least at least 200 times. So, like, I just have this, like, while you're telling the story, I can see the car going through the surf stuff section. 
and everything. Yeah. So pretty that track layout so stuck into my mind. Um, which is just so different from what we race on today is amazing. Um, you know, we're basically racing on asphalt with more traction um, yep. and huge, huge jumps. And it's more like an aerial assault out there. Um, uh, that was, it was really fun. And there were actually knobs on the tires. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and dirt, you know, dirt flew up in the air when you run around a corner, you know. It's roost like, and everything. Almost like the real thing. There was a roost. Yeah, there you go. You know, Vincent so, from Connecticut wanted your um, opinion on the older tracks compared to the newer tracks today. So, okay, now you're going to get me on my soapbox. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Jason, Jason was headed down that road a minute ago, and he started talking about how tracks used to be and everything. And, and right. now you're talking to someone who really thinks we're headed down the wrong road here. You know, the world's warm-up was a classic example of that. Is uh, what's what worries me. I'm, you know, obviously, I'm looking at it from a you know a manufacturer's point of view and from an industry's point of view. Is you know the closer and closer we get to just running the cars on carpet with bumps the more we're chasing away the beginner drivers who can't drive at that level on those kind of traction uh, that traction levels and uh, can't tune the car for that. So if we really want to kill this industry and our sweet spot in the industry, which is one-tenth off-road, that's the way to do it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure why we have to go to these major races and the bite has to be through the ceiling um, in order to make the, the heroes happy. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the top guys are going to be at the top of the pack. No whether the track is slippery or whether it's loamy or whether it's it's filled with moon craters or it's a carpet track, the same guys are going to migrate to the top of the field. So uh, I'm more concerned about the hobby itself and, and the sweet spot in the hobby, um, you know, drifting away and getting out of, um, out of touch with, you know, our core customers or the guys out the other 90% that, that, you know, aren't even going to the major races. I just I hate to see that trend start filtering down into all the local tracks because, you know, maybe the local track guy doesn't want to work on the track and what he sees is, oh, I can put down a, a thousand pounds of sugar on my track and make, make it hard as concrete and I don't have to work on it anymore. Um, that may be good for him, but it may not be good for all the customers that are coming to drive on the track. So I just, uh, I think it's a bad trend for us and um, that's as far as I'll go there, but uh, I'm just concerned about the biggest category in our our hobby, one tenth off road. Uh, that we're we're headed down the wrong road. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and you know, obviously, like you talked about, that sweet spot is so important, and we're gonna have to do something to uh, to maintain that. You know, you could you could use another example that happened over the last few years of a similar situation. You know, along comes the biggest thing to hit our our hobby in, geez, what the last ten years or something, which is is short course, and everything fell into place. You know, you had Traxxas come into the into the full size industry and spend millions of dollars to to put RC in front of the masses. You know, Bravo Traxxas, I got to say that. Um, on the other hand, you had you had the full-size short course racing on TV and people could actually watch it and see, wow, there's actually a, a full-size racing class that looks like an RC car because RC cars had evolved into moon buggies or whatever you want to call them that don't look like anything anymore. Look mm-hmm. at a truggy, you know? So it's, you, you, 
so you had these things fall into place. You had you had uh, uh, the economy tank at, at about the same time that short course kind of came along, and Traxxas was doing all this promotion in other industries, in addition to us out there, at a different level. But but you you had all these things fall into place, and short course just took off like wildfire. So here you have record turnouts at all the local tracks nationwide. And it's everybody's driving slashes and SC10s and low C trucks. And it's just going like gang fire. It's the best thing to hear in industry in years. And then what happens? The tracks slowly evolve back into supercross tracks. They, they start becoming tracks where the average guy who's walking into a hobby shop can't even drive around the track without standing in the middle of the track out there. He doesn't want to walk back and forth to the driver's stand. The track's too advanced for him to even get around. So he stands in the middle of the track. And then what happens? Joe Pro shows up and yells at him for standing on the track, and the guy leaves because her feelings are hurt. So we keep going through this, this trend or this repeating pattern of something great comes along, and it builds the industry up, and then all of us, we're guilty too here, we help evolve it into something that doesn't cater to the new people. And then we end back, we end we end up uh, just catering to the pros, keep them happy, keep them coming to the track, make the track more advanced so the average guy can't even drive it around in one lap. And unfortunately, you know, we're all guys. Most of us are guys out there, and we have egos. And as soon as our ego gets hurt, we're gone. We're going to go look for another hobby. So mm-hmm. there's this repeating cycle we keep doing. So here's another example of short course came along, and now go to your local tracks, and short course is no longer the biggest class anymore. What happened? So yeah, it's, it's really buggy. went to two-wheel buggy. So the tracks become more advanced. And they go, wow, two-wheel buggy's fun. I wonder what four-wheel buggy's like. No, I'll get one of those. <laughs> so now they got a four-wheel buggy. Short course is now the smallest class. So it's, it, it's, it's not good for our industry, and it's not good for the hobby, and it's definitely not good for new people, especially since they walk into a, uh, your local track and they go, they look at this um, truck with giant tires outside the body and the body's small and they go what the heck is that thing is that supposed to be a truck and uh, and then we take the bodies and we distort them to the back where we move the cab all the way forward in the body it doesn't look like anything now so what are we trying to do here are we really trying to build the hobby trying to grow it and build up our customer base and cater to new people or are we just worried about the core group of people that travel around from race to race to race and depending upon that answer we'll determine our destiny Hmm. so how was that for some doom and gloom? That was yeah. yeah. That was an amazing answer. That was great. Well, I mean, it's just it's, well, it's logic. It's, it's truthful. Nothing. It's 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 just logic. It's just saying, guys, what are we doing out here? And it, we all have to be in this together. And all of our jobs and our, and families and everything all depend on this. So it's to me, it's it's really it hits home. And uh, you know, if I was out there in the trenches racing every weekend, I'd probably be oblivious to it because it's it's something I see every week. But now. You know, I sit at my desk and I kind of look and I go out to races, you know, you know, probably one a month or something like that and just show up and watch what's going on. And I see I see the trends that really concern me overall, you know, to, uh, to help build the industry up. So there you go. I mean, it's obviously a, a really big thing. And um, it's just it's an entirely different um, racing atmosphere, obviously, than those days. And maybe it takes maybe it's going to take us to try to reverse that track condition trend and try something different where we all get involved and, and, uh, 
make that appear to be the most popular um, type of condition and fun aspect because, you know, obviously it's sort of that monkey see, monkey do where somebody puts sugar down and pretty soon everybody thinks that's the easy button um, to having a great race. Yeah, it really is. Racing is tough, and um, I don't envy the situation roars, and they always seem to try to do the best they can, and they get beat up um, no matter what they decide. And, um, you know, I think the warm-up event, you know, even though, you know, when I heard that they made the decision at the event to start, you know, sugaring the track and so forth, I wasn't there. I'm just seeing, you know, things come in over the web and, and decisions to go ahead and sugar a track that, you know, when Joey Christensen built a track, he swore that no chemicals would ever go on the track he built or any track he built. Um, so I figured, oh, great, we're going to have a good world and it'll be decent dirt and, you know, maybe it'll groove up, maybe it'll be loamy and it'll be a really good race and something different than past blue groove races, something really off-road again. But that wasn't to be. Um, you know, they they tweaked the track, didn't water it enough, and it turned out to be something super slippery. It was, it was described to me as polished concrete with powder on top. And obviously yeah. that's that's going to be pretty challenging. <clears throat> to get any tire or car to hook up on. Um, and so they went ahead and, and sugared it. It was probably maybe the best decision for the warm-up event just to get through the event. But, um, you know, I hope it doesn't go that direction for the world. But who knows at this point. You know, we got a Nationals to get through and, and on that same track in early August and then obviously the world's in late September. And, and um you know, I, I hope it's a great world because, you know, with aiming behind it and pushing it and all the promotion they're doing, and obviously we made the decision to sponsor the worlds along with ProLine, and that's some pretty, pretty big investments on all of our parts. So I really hope it's a great event. And um, mm-hmm. there's there's no controversy after it. Everybody leaves the event and says, yeah, that's a great race, and those guys who won deserved it. You know, that's what yeah. I hope for. So. Well, yeah, uh-huh. I'm definitely looking forward to the event. Hopefully it uh, comes out the way... We all hope that it can, and, and uh, we can move on, and we can take the word sugar out of our vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there Agreed. You go. Hey, you were talking about your stealth cars earlier, um, Cliff. Edwin uh, Edwin Pieball asks if you still have your stealth cars. Yeah, we still have quite a few of them. Um, I think a few of them were given away to you know some of the guys that raced way back then that retired from racing. Uh, they contacted us years ago and asked if they could have one just to kind of put on the shelf. And I think we we went ahead and gave them to them. I think we still have about a half a dozen of the the second generation stealth cars. But the the first generation ones we ran in '89 in the Australian Worlds. There were only three made, and one I think is Gene Hustings Museum. Another one is here in the building. And not many people know that um, you know that that car was really developed back in 1988, '89. And that was the prototype for, you know, the B3, B4 generation of cars. Uh, and if you really, if you look at pictures between the stealth car from Australia and you look at, you look at like a B3 or, or obviously the B4 changed even more, but um, you'll see many, many similarities, you know, in, you know, equal arm lengths and the way the car was laid out and, and uh, the length of shocks and where they're mounted on the arms and so forth. Um, that really was the precursor to the, you know, the, uh, the B3, B4 series. 
So, but those cars are still around. There's one in the museum. I think there's one back in engineering that we use just for kind of reference to look back in. And in our engineering department here, we have a long glass case and a lot of our prototype cars, you know, when we get to the point of making an SLA model and all that sort of stuff, um, they're all in that case, whether it was the original TC3 or whether it was monster trucks or buggies or trucks or SC10s, all those prototype cars are in that case there. And we usually at least keep one here just for reference sake. Um, you know, it reminds us how we did something way back then. Hmm. Well, I'm, it's good to hear that you have some of the Generation 2 stealth cars because I, I want to ask for one. <laughs> I want to I put one on my shelf. Well, we'll uh, I'll look around and see if there's any spares floating around there, Jason. That would be so nice. So, that's the, you'd that's be, the dream You'd be part. the exception. You'd be the exception to the rule there, you know, where the only people that could own them was people that actually went, or drivers that actually drove the 91 Worlds and actually competed with them. So you might be the one uh, exception to the rule. Yeah, I, I uh, that's a dream car, I think, for most people in at least my generation of racing is to have one of those cars, like the Ferrari of, uh, of RC cars, I think. You know, it was a pretty unique project in design. You know, we went to the Nationals that year. We're on the same track in Detroit, Michigan. And we went to the Nationals, and we did really well at the Nationals. But after the Nationals were over, we stayed the next day, and we tested the stealth car. And so it was a a one-off, hand-built, forward-swept arm car. And what we learned is um, in that surf, it was called the surf's up section, which is that big, bumpy section that was right in front of the driver's stand. It was the one where I had that really funky kind of weaving line to it. Um, but that, uh, that car, uh, in prototype form from the nationals, uh, you could almost go full punch to that whole section. And we went back home and went ahead and produced 15 more cars. But what we did is we came back and we molded a lot of the parts. And when we did that, um, we lost something in the translation. It didn't work as good as the prototype. So we went to the world. Oh, hold on one second. Jason, we're getting a lot of background noise from you, Jason. How about now? Uh, that's a little better. Go ahead, Cliff. Sorry. That's okay. I'll just start over. Okay, good. Well, you yeah. know what? Actually, I wasn't recording this at all, so we better start off from the beginning. <laughs> so, so how you doing, Cliff? <laughs> <laughs> gotta go. I got a meeting. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Great talking to you. Bye. No. All right. Huh. Yeah. No. Anyway, um, you know when we we're still got a lot of that background noise. Yeah. Knock it off, Jason. Yeah. What are you doing? Put I'm Mayfield's car down and just come over and talk to us. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about that race, will you? <laughs> no. When we went to uh, when we developed the, the second generation stealth car, um, we went to the nationals in Detroit, Michigan, which were several months before the worlds maybe six months before the world, and we tested a prototype there of that forward swept front end. And um, that was something that Roger and I had worked on for months, this concept of, you know, how do you take a 30-degree kick-up? I'm going to start talking technical here, sorry. How do you take a 30-degree kick-up front end, sweep the arms forward, and not lose right height? That's really That was really the, uh, uh, the design um, um, issues to get past, hurdles. Mm-hmm. And the only way you could do it was you had to completely redesign the carrier and axle assembly where the axle was down below the arm, which was a very unique design at that time. Nobody had done anything like that before. <clears throat> and so we machined all this stuff, went to the, the nationals, 
and the car was unbelievably good around that track. You could just wood it through all the bumps. It was great. And the greatest part in the whole theory behind that car was that it wouldn't dig in the front end on bumpy tracks. And we found, because battery life was a major issue then, it isn't today, but it was then, is we could pick up 30 seconds of runtime by not having the, the chassis dragging on the ground in the front end. So that itself was huge. Um, faster motors, gear them up, use the battery up. And uh, so that was, our, that was our strategy for the world. So we went ahead and came home, molded a lot of the parts, and in molding them, the design changed. Went back to the worlds with 15 of those cars, and they didn't work. So here was another case of, you know, we're all sitting around the pit area with cars that didn't work. What do we do? So we completely, I mean, we, again, one of those, uh, one of those stories of, of everybody scratching their heads and pulling together and Curtis getting out the sheets of fiberglass and us making new shock towers and us going to local machine shops and having new springs wound. And it was basically wow. do anything. There was, there is no constraints. It's do anything to make this car work. It doesn't matter if we're working 24 hours a day all week, we're doing it. And, um, and we turned that car around and it won the world, uh, that week. And Masami was the winner. And, um, so that was just another one of those, you know, call it Cinderella stories where, you know, we all put our heads together and we, we, we found what we missed in making the, we'll call it semi-production car, the molded car, and, and realized that we had, we had changed too many things since the prototype. So, um, so anyway, that was a pretty unique car. We never produced that car because we felt after the world that it had too many other issues. There were advantages with it, but there were too many other disadvantages, so we never produced it, never made oh. production. Okay. That is a, um, I mean, that that whole car and that concept and that, um, do you guys ever think that you'll have a day where there's a, a prototype car like that again at a world championships? Um, it would be great if those days were still here, but obviously I think every company in this industry has had to, you know, sharpen things a little bit and streamline a little bit more and, you know, cut some of the fat and focus a little bit more on business rather than a hundred percent on just going racing and, you know, whatever, whatever profits made, uh -huh. profits made, you know, we all have to operate in the black these days. And, um, so I think, you know, we're still a pretty rare organization here, Team Associated I'm talking about, because mm -hmm. all those same people that were in place then are still here, and they still are doing the same thing, and they still mm -hmm. have that passion about wanting to do just that. We go to these races, right. and we're going to the race to win. And if it means we have to make stuff all night long for a week straight, then that's what we're doing. It may not be to the, you know, 10th level like it was back then because, you know, okay, let's face it, I was a lot younger then and and uh, had a little bit more energy. And, and uh -huh. um, but, you know, so, you know, going to a race and staying up all, all night for a week straight is definitely not the top of my list anymore. But, um, but I think that the passion is still there from our group here, especially with our new younger engineers, to do just that, is to win at any cost. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna work ourselves to um, you know to exhaustion in exhaustion in, in figuring out how to do it and how to win. So, you know, we have a big world's coming up. 
and um, obviously that it's it's no secret. You know, we're going to a world championship, and Associated doesn't have a mid motor car yet. Um, but there there are plans in place, and uh, the good news is is we have one of our our top agents over in the UK, CML, who actually, um, um, you know, developed a what they call the C4.1, 4.2, which is a mid-motor version of the B4, and we've had some very, very good luck with that. And you know, from my point of view, what they've done is they 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 basically did some work that gave us more time to figure out exactly what we want to do long term. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, the car we have and the car we competed with at the warm-up was pretty darn good, and um, we came back from the, the warm-up and, and learned some things and know what we want to do to the car to make it even better. So that's kind of our plan for the Worlds is, you know, we won't have a mid-motor car out uh, of our own by the Worlds, uh, but we are working on one, and um, but it won't be ready by then. So what's happened with the C4.2 is just given more, given us more time to actually figure out exactly what we want to do and look further down the road on where's the class going. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is it all going to be mid-motor? Is it going to be rear motor? Is it going to be shared? Is it, is, is it, is it uh, astute at this point to, to do a, a dual platform car or a dedicated platform car? You know, and I mm-hmm. think that's where... That's that's one of the hardest parts of our jobs is to be able to look three four years down the road and see where things are going to be at and design for that. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to do to have a crystal ball, but you know we we try to do our uh, do our best at at figuring out what the market and what racers are going to want that far down the line. Tell us a little bit about. Um, I know you can't um, you know talk about all any details, but as far as the team associated. Um, you know, fans out there, um, do they have some good stuff to look forward to as far as products from you guys and new new cars and that type of stuff? Yeah, there's lots of stuff in the pipeline, um, and uh, you know we'll start seeing we'll start seeing some uh, some new products coming out later this year. You know, obviously I can't tell you exactly what, but uh, we're yep. gonna have a pretty busy year here over the next year and through 2014. So. There's lots of stuff in the pipeline. Um, you know, we have some new license product coming out here in, in uh, the next month, month and a half, and uh, then obviously more racing product coming out late in the year and all through next year. So I think there's going to be a little more focus on um, race stuff here over the next year and a half than than RTR products and so forth. You know, we're still supporting our RTRs and we're still making RTRs and we're still keeping those up to date. And you know, we're still you know, uh, expanding our qualifier series of products, which is more of our, you know, our fun line of, of entry-level products. Um, but uh, there's going to be more focus on some of the factory team-level products and and on uh, the high-end racing end of things. So, uh, so yeah, lots lots of stuff in the pipeline. And um, and I appreciate you asking that question in that manner, Jason. So. Did. <laughs> <laughs> And kind of going back a step to um, this re-release of the RC10 Classic, is there some stuff that you can talk to us about on that release? Yeah. Um, right now the car is um, is scheduled to be released the first week of September. And um, so uh, we just got the final sample of the chassis in, uh, on Monday of this week. And uh, it looks great. 
um, you know, we had to retool the chassis and kick up and motor plate and those sort of items because the, uh, the tooling we used back in, back in the day was lost. And so we, we actually had to retool quite a bit of the car. Uh, some of the parts are original, some are not. But uh, what we've done on any part that is, has been molded new, uh, we've marked the part so it's very easy to tell from the original parts. And that's true throughout the entire car. Um, we didn't want to take any value away from anyone that has a, you know, original, original car from the, you know, the first batches of RC10s. And, uh, you know, even the, even the packaging box, the main box, like the box top is exact, the, uh, exactly the same as the original box, but the side panels are different. And we really struggled with this in planning the RC10 because, you know, we, we know there's a huge group of purists out there that want the original car, but uh, and we want to make the original car just for the sake of, of using that classic term, but there's a few things that aren't practical in doing it that way. For example, if we made the original car, you wouldn't be able to fit any current battery in it. No stick pack right. would fit in, uh, fit in it, and no lipo pack would fit in it. So obviously, the battery cup had to be moved in the chassis a little bit, and the rear bulkhead had to be modified so that you could actually get a battery pack into the car. Um, and uh, we all know that if you put a brushless motor in the original RC10 six-gear transmission and uh, you punch the throttle, you're gonna those those idler gears are gonna come out the side of the transmission and <laughs> fine fine powder. Um, so we had to retool the idler gears and actually make them stronger and beef that up a little bit. And um, you know, part of the problem with the original idler gears was that the lower gears and the upper gears weren't very concentric. So uh, that caused a um, failures in the idler gear. So we've retooled <clears throat> a lot of those parts in the transmission, including the transmission case, and we've already tested the production transmission down to, you know, eight, uh, six, seven, eight turn brushless motors and everything holds up just fine. So we're, we're pretty confident in that. But, you know, aside from those items, there's not really much different on the car. Proline retooled the original tire, put Proline on the sidewall, uh, we retooled the original wheels. It still has dog bones. It still has the original steering bell cranks. It's um, we we definitely had to update the shocks a little bit because the original shocks were so bad um, that your car would leak the oil out sitting on the bench, and we didn't think that current customers would accept that these days. So um, so we actually had to do a little tweaking on the shocks to get those right. So um, but aside from that, original body, original wing. Original driver's figure. It's it's about as classic as we could possibly make the car. What did you do for the instruction manual? Did you, you reprint the old manual, or how did you end up having to do that? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because I forgot about that part. That was a tough one because you know in our our engineering meetings here or our, our product planning meetings here, we're all that was kind of a big disagreement. It was like 50-50 down the line. Some people wanted to do the original manual where you got a bunch of text in one book and you got a bunch of pictures in the other. And you have to open right. the book up and you have to read the text and you have to refer to the pictures. And um, so there was, there, was, uh, there was the group of people that wanted to do that original manual exactly that way. And then there was the other half that said, look, okay, current customers are not going to accept that. That may cater to the, the, the guys out there that are purists that just want that original manual, and it may take away from the value of those original manuals that were done that way. 
So we actually cited for, for uh, coming out with a manual that's a bit more up-to-date. Uh, it uses a lot of 3D assemblies and um, less text, but there's still quite a bit in there to actually get through some of the assembly steps. So I would say that it's, it's more of a modern manual than it is the original manual, but it's definitely something in between. Okay. I think, was, I think um, by today's standards, you know, originally when we planned out the RC-10, it was like, look, make it original. We don't care if batteries fit or not. We don't care if the shocks leak or not. We don't care if people can't figure out the manual. We're going to make it original. Well, <laughs> for, for the purists out there that want the original car, they're all going to be happy. And then the other 90% are going to be really mad. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Why would Associated make a car where hinge pins don't fit and I have to ream everything? Why doesn't the screw thread? Why doesn't the screw thread in? You know, why doesn't my Allen wrench fit the thing? I mean, we're going to upset more people by making some of those little tiny things annoying. We don't want to make them annoying. We want people to be really pumped about this car. And you know, one of the one of the driving reasons for making this car was okay. Yeah, it's cool, and we're making a we're making the iconic car that got this all started back in the '80s. Okay, that's number one. Number two is we really, really hope that this car will spur vintage racing and really encourage it to get going because, look, guys, what is the next big thing here? Monster trucks, rally cars, boats, 100-mile-an-hour cars. What the heck is the next big thing here? What's left? We've been down every road, yeah. We've been down every road here unless we come up with moon buggies or something else, you know, but the bottom line is what's next? Well, guess what? There's been a trend over the last couple of years here. Vintage racing is big time in Europe. And it's catching on here. Mm-hmm. At RCX, when we displayed the car and we had the full-size RC-10 there, we had people that flew in from other states back east just to see what we were going to show there. And yes. they were tracks that their biggest class of racing was vintage racing. Mm-hmm. So from our point of view, what could be better than vintage racing? Because here's the class where it doesn't matter how you finish. Because what this class is about it's about the guys sitting at the pit benches in the pit area of the local tracks, showing each other their cars and showing how cool it is what they did that week to their car. They're right. gearheads. And this is 95% of the guys that are at racetracks are the guys that just want to be there to show what they did to their car or how they customized it or what tires they mounted up or what they did to their chassis or where they drilled the holes or how they lightened their shock towers. These are the guys. And they may not be the best drivers, but they're the guys that are driving our industry. And this is the bread and butter for, for all of us here. So what could be better than to bring out an iconic car that caters to those guys? Yeah, they'll race, and yeah, they'll be there weekly. And whether they win their heat or not, does it really matter? My car's cool. It doesn't matter how I finished on the track. My car's cool. When I went to the Reedy race in January, there was a half a dozen RC10s sitting on little car stands on people's benches. Why? There's no class there for them. They brought them along because they're cool. And, if we, and, and so here's a class where it's about customizing and building and hobbyists. It's not racing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I hope it's the next big thing. And I hope other manufacturers jump on here, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, follow a trend like this. But these were the two main driving points for us. Um, so, you know, originally we were only going to make a, 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 
a small quantity of the RC-10s, and that was going to be it. It was going to be a, um, a collector's item. And we, uh, we were overwhelmed by the interest when we let out the first little hints that we were doing something, especially with some of our, our promotions we'd done on Facebook and with some of the early advertising we did. Uh, so we doubled production, and it still was a drop in the bucket from what we needed to make. So, you know, the entire production is completely pre-sold and gone at this point uh, of the RC-10. So um, we're really happy about that. And and on top of all this we just talked about is there's going to be parts available for everybody out there with old RC-10s, and all the parts are interchangeable. Wow, so, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really good. That. that was a question from Travis in Virginia. He was wondering how many kits you plan on producing. Yeah, I can't tell you how many we're going to do, but it was, uh, we started out with a small number and then we increased it and then we realized that wasn't enough and then we started lending out little hints that we were going to do this project and then we ended up doubling that and <laughs> um, the entire production was sold uh, the second day after the announcement. Wow. Day and a half. So it should be good. And, you know, part of this is, okay, we could go out there and mass produce the darn thing and, but what that does is it really brings down the value of all of them. You know, the, the whole point of this matter was to keep the value of the car up there, keep it a collector's item, don't do anything that would devalue the original cars out there, get the parts out on the market so people can replace some of their parts on their original cars if that's what they choose to do. Uh, get the parts out on the shelves so people can go race them if that's what they choose to do. Uh, you know, still a lot of the team car parts, the long arms, the still transmission, all that stuff still sitting on our stock here. We still sell that stuff. So, you know, it's a, it's a huge aftermarket industry that's going to spawn from this again. Um, mm-hmm. I talked to Eustace Moore of MIP when I was at the RCX show, and he hadn't heard that we were releasing the RC10, and he was giddy. I got emails from him every day for a week after the RCX show asking me questions about what we're doing and, and if these products that he used to make would still fit and so on and so forth. So uh, we're really pumped about it. And you can tell that I'm really passionate about it because it's, it's the car I kind of started with and, and uh, <clears throat> spent most of my, my first few years here with developing and, and racing with. And, you know, I won some, some good races with it. So for me, it really goes back to my roots. We've been pretty giddy about the whole thing, too, so uh, it's going to be exciting. Giddy, giddy, giddy. Uh, speaking of going back, the the iconic Cliff Lett paint job, where where did that come about? I know a lot of people would probably like to know that answer. Um, the uh, iconic paint job, are you uh, – we got to determine which one that is the, well, the, it, it did evolve a bit. The – we'll say the moo cow – Oh, the Mucal. Okay, that was kind of second-generation Clifflet paint schemes. Uh, the first generation was something where, obviously, when I started racing, I, 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 I hate to revert back to what we first talked about, but it was I met Jay Halsey and his dad and so forth. So Jay was kind of like my – he was my idol dad at that time because he was winning everything and nobody could even stay on the same lap with him. So I was like a sponge back then, learning as much as I could and so forth. And Jay actually painted some of my first bodies. And – it was a scheme kind of similar to his, and uh, eventually we were racing against each other, and, and um, we started getting our cars mixed up on the track. So he encouraged me. He encouraged me to change my paint scheme. So the paint scheme kind of became that blue, white, and fluorescent 
red-orange scheme uh, with, a, a, with a, a, a very thin yellow pinstripe separating the colors. And that was kind of my first scheme. He talked me into doing that. I think he even did a couple of my first bodies. And then, um, so I raced with that several years. And then along came the Moo thing. Well, the, the whole Moo thing was more of a, that was something that Derek Furtani uh, started. And then I think Mark Pavitas jumped on that. And then, you know, I became a, I became a um, Team Moo member. And um, <laughs> I'm not really sure what it was all about, but it was cool. And um, when we went to some of the races, when they announced your name, like for an A final, um, and, they, you know, they announced your name, part of Team Moo or something like that, the whole crowd would moo. So it sounded like you're getting booed. <laughs> And, yeah. But it was just it was a standard procedure at some of the races, so it, it just brought another level of, of um, camaraderie to the racing events. But it was it was Derek Furtani who kind of started all that, oh. and I think I still have my Team Moo T-shirt that he gave me somewhere. It's in the nice. closet or something. But uh, but that's kind of how all that got all started with the Moo thing. Gotcha. All right. Caught on. Caught on like wildfire. I mean, the uh, just those old spreads they used to do in car action with Cliff's cars are just so uh, it's just like the blueprint for building those particular vehicles I can't imagine how many people I mean, how many people I've bumped into that just all they can talk about is that car action with Cliff's car from the top down and you're like I was looking at that with a magnifying glass and I changed everything and then your truck came out and your truck that stuff was just so fun back then those were the days because you think about it for a second is you know you got an rc10 car and you open up the box and who tell me one person that would put it together and raise it in standard form right no one right what fun is that no you took it apart and you had to kind of you know file the gears and you had to get the transmission where it's smooth and you had to pin your diff and you know, you had to change the bearings out and go to CVDs, and, you know, you had to build your shocks or get the hard anodized ones if you're really cool, and <laughs> and then carve down your chassis and drill holes in it or mill it if you had somebody with a mill. And, yeah. you know, I mean, that's what everybody did. So that, that's a hobby, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. How stinking spoiled rotten are we now? are now? You open the box up, you put the car together, and you go race it. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's really changed over the time, and granted, it's because the manufacturers are always trying to outdo the other guy and come out with a car that's great out of the box and has all the accessories out of the box and so forth. But um, so when you really think back to the RC-10, I mean, that was when it was a hobby, and everybody treated it that way. And yeah. you, you, you couldn't buy an RTR at that point, right? They, right, I, don't right. they, I don't think they existed, you know, unless mm-hmm. it was a Tamiya car or something like that. But, um, but yeah, that was when it was a hobby. You know, you had to pick your electronics and you had to build it because it was a kit, and and everybody learned to work on their cars. And you know, many times nowadays, a guy buys an RC car, he buys the RTR because it's easy, and then he doesn't even know how to take it apart and work on it. So Very true. A lot of it's all about the. Yeah, it's all about the tinkering. It is. It is about the tinkering, especially in racing. So, you know, we learned our lesson a few years ago. We actually uh, we sold a factory team kit that was assembled, and um, 
we found out really quickly that racers don't want things assembled. Um, so, you know, now our kits are obviously kits uh, because that's, you know, nine out of ten racers are going to want to put it together themselves and make sure it's perfect and choose their own oil and their own, you know, diff lube and set the dip themselves and build their own shocks and make sure they're perfect. So that's just uh, the way racers are these days. There you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm moving around. I'm, I'm, I'm at the track. I'm trying to go watch the eight ball fire. I don't worry about that. <laughs> Good for I you. I might put you guys on. Might put you guys on mute for five minutes. You can talk while I watch the eight ball fire. <laughs> Putting the A over Cliff. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, I feel. I already got the self. I already oh, got hey. the self car, so I'm going on mute. Hey, <laughs> you can just. You just send that stealth car to Pennsylvania. Yeah, hey, I didn't say yes, Jason. I yes. said maybe. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. All right, don't put him on mute then. Don't. <laughs> Unless you want to hear about 18 buzzing nitro cars. No, Ooh. not at all. Yeah. We'll try to say, which one sounds like Mayfield? <laughs> <laughs> the one that's really revving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, back to the original RC10. Jason looks forward to making a cab forward body for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if he does that, I'm going to disown him. Oh, you are yeah, not the Mark, first person that said that. Mark said he was going to unfriend me on Facebook if I did it. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, don't do so that. We'll have to go cab, cab standard. Well, we had a lot of questions about part support for that, but you answered that. So, I mean, uh, you guys plan on backing it up. Covered the bases. Yeah, should be good. We should have everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the – oh, one thing I forgot to mention about the chassis is obviously we retooled the chassis. I did mention that. And it's very difficult to tell it from the original one. Uh, but what we did do is we did put the holes in the chassis for the stealth transmission so that customers mm-hmm. don't have to drill and countersink it themselves. And that was another one of those really difficult things for us to decide upon because, again, mm. <clears throat> the purists, they want the original. and yeah. right. and. Many of the purists come from back in the days when, hey, was it a big deal to drill a hole? Nah, give me a drill. I'll drill it any day, okay? Do I have a countersink? You bet I do. And I'm going to drill it, and I'm going to countersink it, and everything's fine. But today, not today. <laughs> um, most people, that's not acceptable, that I'm going to have to drill a hole in order to bolt something in. And a countersink, what the heck's a countersink anyway? You know, So it, we had to make the decision to put the holes in, and that we struggled with that one because, obviously, we consider ourselves purists here because we made the original car. So we wanted to make it as original as we possibly could, but again, within reason. It yeah. had to be reasonable for people to be able to put together, customize it the way they want, fit in a battery that you can get. And um, and then, you know, the rest is uh, up to them. They can customize it as, what, as much as they want. Now, you said you retooled the six-gear transmission uh, to make it stronger and stuff. I w- so you're saying I will not need Crest whitening toothpaste to break that baby in anymore? You should be able to put that thing together and spin it like a top from the beginning. Ooh, there we go. All right. Sweet. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> should be, it should be pretty good from the beginning, though. A lot better than the original one because the original one, they had gears that were shaped like eggs. And, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And there were there were duck webs between the teeth on the gears, so you had to do a lot of you had to do a lot of uh, tweaking to get the original transmission. Um, good. You know, just the other day, I haven't bought um, I've I've bought some RC10 stuff on eBay over the course of a few years, but 
yesterday, or well, several days ago, someone sent me a link to the RC10 Worlds car, which was the Kinwald edition with his, I guess it wasn't the Kinwald edition, but the Worlds car with his uh, paint job on the front. And I'm like, that's the car that I wanted because that's the car that I um, I like. And um, the, uh, the bids started at $710. And, Ouch. Um, so I was, we were having lunch the other day, and I'm just like, Ah, screw it. I'm just going to put in a thousand dollars. See what happens. Jeez. So, so I I, I bid a thousand dollars for this RC10 World Car, and if the box is open, but everything's sealed, and um, I'm thinking I'm going to win this thing. You know, who's going to who's more nuts than that? <laughs> and um, it it ends up going for fourteen hundred and twenty-five dollars. Wow. wow. For the RC10 World Car. And. Uh, Everybody's egging me too, trying to get me to bid. Like they're like, "Oh, this guy's gonna beat you. This guy's gonna he's gonna outbid you." I'm just like, "Man, I'm like, I'm not going that far with it." Somebody wanted but, his dad, you know. Somebody yeah. wanted it, you know. And there was a guy that was um, that was fighting with me over it for the for the thousand, and he's like bidding another twenty dollars, another twenty dollars. So, and you could see he. He had it for seven ten, but he had to go all the way to a, over a thousand to beat me. And then some other guy came in and just blew it out of the water. How many but, total uh, bids were there? You know, it was between four or five people, but um, I'm not sure how many bids there there were. Um, it was, uh, but it was it was quite a few. Yeah, Jason, that was me that won that. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> he sent me the link in a text, and then I started bidding. <laughs> nice, but you can have it now for fifteen hundred. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit. Well, who knows? You know, we'll see how the RC how or the RC ten gets you know goes over with everybody and and uh, gets out into the market and and uh, you know if vintage racing catches on and becomes a class or something and you know who knows. Um, you know, I, I think you know doing that car again is within our reach not planned but it's why wouldn't we you know so it's 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 doable and it could really feed that you know the next big thing if it ends up being that well my birthday is september 5th cliff and uh what a nice gift that would be from team associated to give Gotti jr a one of the you know roll it right off the assembly line and send it right to Gotti. yeah that would be nice well <laughs> Zing. I'm definitely, well, I'm definitely excited for this uh, RC10, and I think, like Cliff says, um, uh, the vintage racing, and uh, obviously uh, being a part of that, and you know maybe some new items, and uh, and then getting into your guys' new race stuff at the end of the year in 2014 sounds like it's a good time to be a team associated guy. Gosh, I couldn't have said that better myself, Jason. That was awesome. Can I quote you on that? <laughs> yes. That's a box quote right there. Put that in the magazine. Yeah, there you go. These guys these guys that associated have been so good to me over the years and um it's been fun being with these guys and racing with the Cliffs and Mark Pavitas and Ken Walls and all these guys and now still at the track doing this, so so it's been awesome. And uh my mentor. So that's the, the uh he's the RC God. 
<laughs> yeah, don't 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 call me a god. That's for sure. But we appreciate you too, Jason. I mean, you I've we've known you since the beginning, especially myself, and uh, racing with you and your parents there every week. Um, and uh, that was um, those were good days. And then uh, there came the day when you started kicking my butt too. So that that that's, <laughs> that's when uh, you became one of the heroes too. So we appreciate everything you've done with us and all your support over the years too. So. Well, good. Well, hopefully these guys with the radio impound can help sell some more RC10s. You know it. I know Kirby's going to buy everything pink, he said. Yes. Throwback colors. Yeah, that's right. You can dye everything again. Yeah. I'm going to, except this time, I'm going to bust out. I'm going to take one off the, uh, the old JT Racing Dalmatian gear, the old Ron Lachine gear. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Team Zoo. He's still around. He's yeah, still he is. Around. Yep. He's still fast. Yep. Well, still fast. At, and at the track here, we have some good news and some bad news. The good news is Mayfield PQ'd the Treggy class, but he just had a really bad run in buggy, so I got to go see what happened. But that just means that we're going to have to stay here now till till midnight for the last qualifier to see if he can uh, PQ the whole thing in buggy. So. Oh. He's going to be mad. Yep, that's the point. Get them fired up and send them out there. It'll work. (laughs) Yep. Competition beware. We had somebody at the Roar Nationals last year with us, and um, they're watching Ryan came back after a race, and he's just so upset, and he's, like, you know, going off, and, and she's like, what happened to him? You know, did he do really bad? I'm like, no, he got second. (laughs) <laughs> she's like wow mm. that's how these guys are yeah absolutely As it, uh, Saxon says uh, if I show you a good loser I'll show you a loser or something like that so. <laughs> that sounds like Saxon yeah so. well anyway I don't know if you guys have any more questions for Cliff I think I'm pretty much done well I could be on the phone for another hour because I'm a big Moto fan, but yeah. I won't. I won't go there. Well, we'll have Cliff back on the show again. Just all Moto yeah, just, review. Yeah, just let me know when you guys want to talk, and you know, give me a you know a couple days notice, and uh, it's no problem at all. And Sweet. if you want to talk Moto, we can go back into the golden years of that too, and talk about some of those funny stories. Yamaha factory wrench. Yep, yeah. did that too. Yeah. So, I guess I the can, one story that. I think of really quick is Saxon was on the show and he told us that he did a, a magazine shoot and you brought a bike out that he test rode before, he, obviously when he was young. Um, and then he didn't meet you in RC till years later. Yeah, I do remember that. His name was King Richard Saxon. And um, <laughs> his parents used to take him to the races, all the mini cycle races, uh, you know, anime and anime and so forth that... Um, and they had this big trailer. And the back door of the trailer uh, was a slot machine. Because they're from Vegas, <laughs> right? right? Right. And um, it was, a, I just, I remember that to today, you know. And, and obviously, you know, Saxton was, you know, gosh, I don't know how many championships he won in minicycles and all that. But um, I didn't really know him then. I knew his parents and, you know, just basically pie and buy and all that. It's not really personally and everything. But, you know, Sa- uh, Saxton was ballistic when he was a little kid. Um, 
you know, on a motorcycle, and that we didn't really meet each other formally and get to know each other until, you know, yeah, RC came along years later. So another one of those, uh, you know, amazing stories of uh, being around people for years, and then you don't really meet them until you're in the same industry. Um, it's another unique story. Small world. Larry Ward is here racing here this weekend. He's a big RC guy. Um, but yeah, he loves RC. Big Bird. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crossover there. And I think it, it goes back to what I talked about earlier is, you know, the guys that ride moto, they have that feeling. They know what it feels like to jump. And uh, mm-hmm. the throttle... Um, um, you know the throttle positions for going through bumps and things like that. I think I think they have that inclination from riding moto, and they can relate to it when they get in driving an RC car. Um, and so a lot of those guys, you know, become fast over the years. You know, Saxton mm-hmm. was definitely one of them, and you know, there's a few more. Doug Dubach, another big name, was really fast in NRC, and there, there's oh, a bunch okay. of them I can't think of right now, but uh, yeah, um, there's quite a few of them. Hey, Cliff, we had a, a question from a listener, Brian Breckenridge. Uh, he asked, um, well, we already got into the RC, your first car talk, but he also asked, uh, he's curious if you ran any dirt oval back in the day, and uh, if so, what races and what do you remember? Oh, I ran everything back in the day. Um, gosh, it was paved oval, velodrome stuff, insane speed run stuff. Uh, I did win, um, I think I won two nationals, Roar Nationals um, dirt oval. One was two-wheel drive. One was four-wheel drive. Um, oh, okay. I don't remember. Ex- I think the four-wheel drive was in Florida. I think the two-wheel drive was up in the northeast somewhere. I don't remember exactly where. But um, And then I raced some, some pave-oval stuff, too. And obviously then that translated into the, all the insane speedrun stuff, which is, mm-hmm. I think, I could, I could probably say that was some of my fa- most favorite things uh, to, to work with, some of the insane speedrun stuff, because it, it was... It required so much ingenuity to figure out how to go just that little bit faster and be able to solve the gremlins that came in along the way. So that was one of my most favorite things. You know, Dirt Oval was, that actually got pretty big back in the day. And, um, you know, eventually the tracks became hard packed. They became blue grooved and then foam tires came along and then air dams. And then it became more on-road racing around the oval. Um, and I think that uh, that probably hurt it back in the day. Mm-hmm. So, um, but anyway, yeah, th- those were great times too. And you know, I was trying to be a jack of all trades because I was really the only designer here and associated in the early days, besides Roger. And <clears throat> so I was trying to do you know dirt oval stuff, on road stuff, pan cars, eight scale on road. Uh, we weren't doing eight scale off road back then, but you know, all the ten scale cars, keeping them up to date. You know, gas truck. You know, so there was <clears throat> there was lots of stuff to do, way more than I could possibly do. And so, um, um, you know, eventually when the late 90s came along, then we started, you know, expanding the engineering department and bringing on new engineers that could, you know, help get more new products designed. But, uh, you know, Dirt Oval was, was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, especially when it was the, the early days of Dirt Oval when you actually slid the car. Um, oh, yeah. And it, it wasn't just you know you're glued in <clears throat> driving around an oval. You know if your car gets loose, it means it's not working. So I think it was better when the car actually you had to slide the car, kind of sprint cars down. Gotcha. Yeah. 
one one quick thing before you leave, Cliff. Just give you a little, I don't know, give a little insight to the listeners. What is Cliff Cliff Let's Day like? When like, what time does it start? You know, when you get up in the morning, do you run to Dunkin' Donuts before you head to Associated? What do you have for lunch? What do you have for dinner? When's it end? So forth. Uh, my typical day. Um, yeah. Typical day for me is uh, I'm usually up about six, and um, depends on the time of year, obviously. Um, but usually up about six. I'm usually in the office by about seven ish, and um, start out by you know, maybe looking at some email before I leave the house. I'm lucky to be uh, my home's pretty close to the office here, so it only takes me about ten minutes to get to the office. So. Um, I try not to look at my email while I'm driving to work and, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, you know, a couple cups of coffee before I leave the house, uh, a bowl of Cheerios and a banana, and then I'm off to work and, uh, stop, maybe get a coffee at Starbucks if, uh, I have the time and, um, start work about 7.15, 7 to 7.15, somewhere around in there and buzz through some email, get caught up on the email that, uh, came in overnight Obviously, most people know over there we, uh, you know, Thunder Tiger does some of our manufacturing for us. So there's a lot of communication that goes back between Taiwan and here. So, um, you know, and many times that that e- the emails from Taiwan show up in the middle of the night, so I don't see them until first thing in the morning. <clears throat> and so it's buzz through some email. Um, you know, go through my calendar here and and uh, schedule any meetings for the day. Make sure I'm I'm going to be around for the meetings, and then. Um, buzz back to engineering, see what's going on with the engineers and what's up to date back then, and make sure there's no engineering meetings where they need any of my time to go over any design reviews. Um, usually uh, one day of the week or two days a week, I go through the product planning schedules and update all the schedules for the new products coming and so forth, and um, <clears throat> possibly a meeting with Tracy to go over sales, uh, possibly new orders for... Uh, product coming in over the next uh, few months. You know, usually we're ordering product about three, four months in advance, so it really requires us to have some crystal balls at times, uh, crystal ball at times. And um, lunch, sometimes I go to lunch, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I work through lunch. And, um, you know. Are you are you a junk food guy or uh, are you? No, I think, you know, we all go through our phases, right? You know, I'm going to buzz yeah. over to Chick-fil-A and get a Chick-fil-A sandwich once in a while. Um, right. Maybe run over and get a salad for lunch or no lunch at all, uh, or buzz back home and make a sandwich at lunch if I have to pick something up at the house or, you know, uh, do some paperwork there. Uh, and then um, I try to get some exercise in the evening, whether it's, uh, you know, go for a long walk with my wife around the neighborhood or jump on my mountain bike. I do a lot of mountain biking, so uh, we have a lot of uh, riding areas here because uh, Associated's in South Orange County, and we're right on the kind of edge of Orange County here where it becomes Cleveland National Forest. So we have a lot of riding trails around the area and a lot of the guys here at Associated Ride. So nice. uh, jump on my mountain bike, go for a ride. Uh, and uh, back to the house, and um, I usually buzz through some email late in the evening, spend some time with my son uh, working on his projects. Uh, he's trying to finish up his uh, Eagle Scout uh, rank right now, so try to help him with some of his projects. and. And then a little bit of email with China or with Taiwan before bedtime, nine ten o'clock, and then usually I'm about done at that point. Um, so that's that's kind of a day in a nutshell. Yeah. That's typical. 
and uh, it varies from there, but that's that's the gist of it. And yes, listeners, on the way to work and on the way home, Cliff listens to the Radio Impound podcast. <laughs> yeah, and while he's mountain biking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, ten minutes to work and ten minutes home. I'm listening to the radio. Uh, at least I don't have to pay attention. <laughs> I don't have to pay attention to the traffic reports or anything like that. So I'm lucky about that. But. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, try and catch up on the news, you know, news channels, something like that, see what's going on in the world, what tragedies happening or what new bogus laws they've come up with in California. And, um, so that's, that's about it, you know. Favorite sports teams? Um, let's see. Well, locally, I'd have to say the Angels. Uh, I played baseball before I was into uh, um, motocross in my teens. So, you know, I've... Um, follow baseball quite a bit <clears throat> I like the Lakers when they're playing well I didn't like them this year uh, <laughs> I won't go any further than that I'm a big Laker fan yeah um, yeah when they're on they're on when they're on when they're not they're not um, and um, enjoy some hockey when I get a chance to see that but I don't really follow any particular teams so that's kind of it uh, as far as sports go uh, I play paintball Play paintball with my son. Uh, Derby. We're uh, we do a little bit of tournament stuff, but not too much. Uh, speedball, that sort of thing. But uh, that's that's a lot of fun. Very energetic and very intense. So um, Kirby was uh, doing paintball for quite a while there in the tournament yeah, level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next yeah, interview. Yeah. Next interview is going to be moto and paintball now. Yeah. Yeah. No RC. <laughs> we already got covered RC. And Lakers. <laughs> in Laker talk, yeah, Laker talk. Yeah, cool. Now we do, uh, we do. Uh, my son and I do some paintball throughout the year. Usually in the winter months, it's getting a little hot out here for it now. But uh, um, we haven't really played on any teams or anything. It's usually go out and just uh, field a team on the day and and you know play some, you know four on four or five on fours that sort of thing on speedball fields and uh, in between a little bit of rec ball and we're good. It's fun. Yeah, that's cool. It's awesome. Now, does your son show interest in RC? You know, he has, but it hasn't been to the point where he's, you know, going racing or anything like that. I think he mostly enjoys just going out, uh, you know, to a local field out here or maybe over to the Oakley track. We built a, we built a track in, uh, right next to Oakley's front door at their factory, so there's a, there's a track right there. And we'll go over there and just drive. He just likes to go play. He doesn't really like the competition part of it. Um, okay. So, but... Um, you know, we usually drive electric eight-scale buggies, things like that, you know, that are just stupid fast and, um, and uh, you know, a little bigger than the 10-scale stuff, and that's, that's usually fun for us. Well, I'm sure if he decides to race on a pro level, he can get a hookup from somebody, you know. I could uh, probably find somebody that could sponsor him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but he's into, he's mostly into martial arts, paintball, uh, scouts, hiking, that sort of thing. So um, that that keeps him pretty busy. That in school. Ooh. Well, we really appreciate your time, Cliff. Oh. We took a lot of it up, but uh, no problem. Appreciated meeting you guys we, and talking with you and uh, reminiscing a little bit. So it's always good to talk about yeah. the good old golden days and everything. So you Absolutely. know, when you guys want to uh, talk some more, just give me a holler, give me a few days' notice, and we'll do it again. Okay. Sweet. We'll definitely uh, get a hold of you. We'll take you up on that offer. <laughs> Um, I know you mentioned your most memorable moment earlier, but uh, I'd like to think it was being on the Radio Impound podcast. So. That's up there on the list now. <laughs> yeah. That's right up there. <laughs> All right. Any of you guys have anything else for Cliff? Just a big oh, I'm, thank you. I'm good. 
All right, there you go. Awesome. All right, Jason, well, good luck back there, and go over and slap Mayfield on the back and said, hey, Cliff says to get the button gear and go out and TQ buggy. Okay? Yes. There you go. <laughs> All right. We're, we're going to make it happen. We're going we're gonna to be here till midnight, and uh, we're going to leave here with a good result. Awesome. Awesome. Sweet. All right, well, send me an email or text and let me know how it went, okay? Okay. Thanks, Cliff. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks All a right, lot. Thanks, Cliff. Talk to you later. Have a All good right, one. See ya. Bye.